we all know that we're facing an environmental crisis and the circular economy is the concept that instead of digging things up, using them and throwing away what we don't need, we actually use things again and again. So it's a lot like recycling. Circular economy as a concept's got a bit of a boost over the last couple of years. There's now a series of international conferences on the circular economy. It's become a buzzword that started to make the mainstream news. And in Queensland, there's a circular economy lab that's been set up working with corporations to try and improve their resource efficiency. And the reason that's so appealing to governments and corporations is that one way of looking at the circular economy is that we can actually save a heap of money by not throwing stuff away, by finding ways to reuse it. So the circular economy, not quite greenwash, but certainly a uh, corporate-friendly and economy-friendly way of looking at the use of resources. So resource efficiency, let's take water for example. In a linear economy we allow water to fall on the mountains, we might capture it in a dam, we let it run down into our cities, we drink it, use it to flush our poo in the toilet and then we let it run down stream into the sea so it carries our waste. So we've used it once on its way down. That's a linear economy capture, use discard. In a circular economy we might say well look what we need to do is treat our wastewater properly so that we can drink it again and so we uh, pump the water from our cities from our stormwater upstream into the hills and let it flow downstream. So one person's even come up with an idea of damming the rivers in our cities so that we have to drink what's in the river, that way we encourage ourselves to keep it clean. So that's an example of the circular economy. One of the proponents of the circular economy is Ellen MacArthur, who's perhaps more famous for having uh, sailed around the world. Here's a little um, snip that she's put together, a two minute sort of sound piece on what the circular economy is. We live in a world with finite materials. We are throwing an awful lot of electronics. Plastic food, carpets, clothing. Away. It's a waste of precious materials. If we could build an economy that would use things rather than use them up, we could build a future that really could work in the long term. You design the product in a way that can be taken apart once the consumer has finished using them. You remanufacture it and give it out again. You can reduce your production costs hugely if applied correctly. Instead of garments ending up in landfill, companies can repurpose it, reuse it, making profit out of their waste. We take some resources from nature and bring it back in the form of nutrients. It's very much a natural cycle. 
We use 70% less water than conventional agricultural methods. Our packaging is not a waste. It's something that you can consume and eat. We redesign everyday products to make them fully recyclable. We farm as close to nature as is possible. The H&M Group has set ambitious targets to use 100% sustainably sourced materials. There is a lot of conversation about not buying clothes, but different models where you can rent clothing. We develop fully modular headphones that we offer on a subscription basis. The circular economy itself is inevitable in my view. It's not one fix, it's about the entire system being redesigned. This is to me the only way to fight climate change, to fight pollution, to fight waste. This is a business model that stacks up. Global companies cannot survive in the future without transitioning towards a circular economy. That is a really exciting future. So some voices talking about the circular economy, clearly with the emphasis there on resource efficiency and how uh, we can make money and be more efficient at the same time. If you're interested in that topic, there is a meetup at the precinct in the Brunswick Street Mall uh, this evening. If you're a member of Meetup, go to meetup.com and just put in circular economy. You'll find the details and you can register there. Uh, the precinct is in the main section of the mall between Wickham and Anne Street in the old uh, TC Beans building. So you can uh, go in there and catch the lift to the second floor. Um, doors are open at five. Presentations start at six. Uh, tonight's talks, one is a branding consultant helping companies promote themselves. Again, I did warn you that the emphasis was on corporations and making money out of being green and the other one is a chemical engineer talking about the retrieval of metals from wastewater so she's been working with mining companies in the northern part of australia retrieving trace metals from uh, the waste of bauxite mines aluminium uh, mines on the gulf there now i've been emphasizing the fact that people who are engaged in the circular economy are focused on uh, money with good reason if we we've found ourselves in the climate wars where the economy is pitched against the environment and this is a constant problem with the way we run our politics so from one point of view it's very good to see an environmental movement that is supported by corporations but of course you run into all sorts of difficulties one of the circular meetups that I attended in the Valley last November had one speaker talking about the notions of sustainability using a cassowary and a rainforest as their primary example and their inspiration was to preserve nature and the natural world for the generations to come. And, you know, their images of the rainforest and of indigenous stewardship of the forest was their inspiration and informed a lot of their decisions. The other speaker was talking about how to retrieve polyester fibres from polyester cotton fabric. So something like 95% of the fabric produced in the world is polyester and cotton blend. Polyester stops the shirt creasing, makes it more usable in a lot of uh, ways. 
The cotton is not recyclable, but the polyester is. And so the um, University of Technology in Queensland here has been developing an enzyme process that gobbles up the cotton and makes it washable away so that you're left with the polyester so it can be retrieved. So you've got this huge industrial process that discards the cotton, the organic material, and retrieves the polyester so that it can be reused. And so that's um, an example of the industrial application of the circular economy. It's not hugely friendly. Now, or it's industrial. It discards organic material. It still produces waste, even though it's reducing the amount of polyester that's wasted. So the discussion emerged about these two different approaches. One is a sort of pro-nature, let's get back to nature, let's nurture uh, the natural world and not harm it. And the other one, an industrial approach to minimise the amount of resources that leak out of the system. And so if you follow that to its logical conclusion, the assumption is that we can save wilderness by synthesizing everything all of the stuff that we know we can eat meat that is grown in a test tube so it's plant might be plant-based meat or it might be made from test tube sized animals we can eat algae and we can manufacture all of the things that humanity needs including clothes including food in these industrial processes and that will preserve nature and so i published an article on great notion not dot news that's the two words great notion put together dot news called save wilderness synthesize everything and that caused quite a controversy because it harshly put the difference between those two approaches so for me that's a summary of where we're at and what the challenges are with the circular economy and so the circular economy people differ greatly from the approach by sustainable enterprise people and by social enterprise people in how they think we should uh, address the environmental problems and the challenges that it presents to our community. My name is Jeff Ebbs. You are on the Zeds where it's 22 minutes past 12 on Wednesday the 26th of February. Need new materials for your next party, event or art project? Does your workplace throw lots of useful stuff that others could put to good use? Reverse Garbage Queensland is a not-for-profit reuse centre that diverts high-quality materials from landfill and sells them for a low cost to the community. With a huge variety of interesting materials to choose from, including textiles, timber, tile, perspex, plastic, boxes, props, paper, barrels, metal and a whole lot more. Open 9 till 5, Monday through Saturday. At 20 Burke Street, Woolongabba. 4 Z subscribers get 10% discount on all raw materials. Visit reversegarbageqld.com.au for more information. Reverse Garbage Queensland, proud sub-discount outlet of 4ZZZ.
never like you because you're insane. The name of the track was Red Light, Green Light. That is the June Rats and they are on tour. June Rats are coming to Brisbane in March 2020. Celebrating their third studio album, the Hurry Up and Wait Tour has a stack lineup including Ruby Fields, Dear Seattle and Toddy. Entering a new phase with their music, they will be bringing us their biggest show to date. So make sure you're at Fortitude Music Hall Friday, March 6. Grab your tickets now from secretsounds.com.au. Secret Sounds, proud sponsors of 4 Z. Blues Fest Touring presents the living legend Mavis Staples at the Trifford on the 4th of March. Soul Sister, Grammy winner, Hall of Famer, R&B chart topper. She's got it all. It's a very special one night only experience. Mavis Staples at the Trifford, Wednesday, 4th of March. Tickets through Oztix. More details at bluesfesttouring.com.au. Proud sponsor of 4ZZZ. And on 4ZZZ, you're listening to Echo Radio with me, Jeff Ebbs. Uh, we've been talking about the circular economy and we're going to talk about the danger of growth. So we can't continue to grow infinitely on a finite planet. There are limited resources. One of the challenges about managing growth is that our affluence is basically dependent on growth. So growing populations, growing debt, growing access to cheap energy have given us a pretty luxurious lifestyle. If you look at the way we live compared to almost any other era in history, no one had the kind of uh, ability to move around comfortably, to communicate with each other in the way that we do. So I haven't completed fact-checking this, but it was from a major scientist today and knew that I heard it, so I'm confident to repeat. Apparently, something like 10% of the world's electricity is consumed by the data centres that run Google, Facebook and all of the other cloud services. Now, that is just enormous. The amount of energy that it takes to provide the communications network that we think of as a benign passive thing is extraordinary and if someone said well look we have to halve our energy use to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 and so we're all going to give up half or all or some percentage of our online time most of this would be a bit cranky and a bit miffed so we really need to think hard about what um, it means not to grow when I first started to think about this, um, a fellow who you might have heard of called Dick Smith was just in the process of selling Australian Geographic magazine. A bit of a story there. It had been a membership organisation and some people claimed that he had no right to sell it. But anyway, that wasn't what I was talking to him about. He'd tried to run that business as a no-growth business. So I thought that it was quite interesting to discuss with him what growth meant to him as a business person and why on earth as a business person he had tried to build a no growth business and what the problems were. Here's Dick. If people are going to own parts of Australia we should own equal part of their country. Now that doesn't happen. 
No, well, of course, the market always favour the well-off, don't they? Absolutely, and the Northern Hemisphere is incredibly wealthy and we will never be that wealthy. We have a small population, thank heavens, and uh, we won't have that incredible material wealth that seems to concentrate in America and in Europe. That means they have this vast amount of money that they'll basically take over everything if we're not careful. Now, some of that is because of the efficiencies of size, isn't it? Larger companies have a much greater ability to absorb overheads and things like that. Absolutely. It's, look, it's the positive side of globalisation is that, in fact, we buy things cheaper. There's no doubt about that. So our material wealth has gone up. The negative side is that we'll lose our culture because we'll find that, whereas in the past country towns were worried in Australia that their kids would go and live in the cities and that took them away from the country town. What's going to happen now is all the talented people in Australia will end up working in New York and London, a lot of them do now, and so it will completely affect our culture. Those talented people, when making decisions, say, for putting donations in or helping the environment, will normally help the local community, which is going to be in the Northern Hemisphere, not in Australia. And so you set up uh, a number of food brands under the Dick Smith brand yep. uh, to try and reverse that. What's your experience been? Well, it's been... It's basically been a failure, I think you'd say, that uh, we used to do about 40 million turnover. This year it'll be about 10 million, and gradually it will fade out because we only deal with Australian farmers and Australian processors, and as we start making a processor successful, they end up selling out. A good example is the Green Food Company, owned by the Green family. Well, they were sold out, and uh, then SPC down in um, in Shepparton were sold out. So basically, there's going to be very little left. Anything that's any good will be sold out to the foreign companies. Now, when it comes to land, you'll find that they'll just come and buy all the best land, and so we'll find that all the best land will be owned from the Northern Hemisphere. Well, we're seeing that here on the northern rivers of New South Wales. Of course, we're one of the few areas on the east coast of Australia that's predicted to have higher rainfall under global warming. Right. And we're getting a lot of interest from East Asian investors. I know that the laws were changed recently to allow individuals to buy uh, land up to the value of 50 million. There's two sides to that, of course. That um, it's Yes, there used to be sort of a foreign industry review board or whatever it was called it used to certify or approve these various sales well now as you've rightly pointed out the hurdle rate is huge and basically anyone can buy anything in this country theoretically we're about we're supposed to be able to go to their countries and buy anything of course it's normally normally a one-way ratchet it doesn't work that way now the reasons that government support this is it's allowed us to have a higher material standard of living than we really deserve by selling off our country both our land and our businesses at inflated prices. It gives us a delusion that we're actually doing well and so we all have high standards of living. We buy new houses and multiple TV sets and all the rest of it, but it's all pretty false. I just wonder when it will actually uh, catch up and we'll have this sort of major downfall because I think it'll eventually happen. 20 years ago, the Japanese bought lots of land around Sydney where I live and Fortunately, they lost most of their money, ended up selling that land off at a far lower price because they paid inflated prices. So you said, I wonder when these things are going to catch up. Some people were sort of worried that it's going to be tomorrow. Um, 
are you concerned that, that that crunch might come now? Well, I'm not so much concerned. I mean, for the foreign investors, well, bad luck for them. They're going to lose dramatically. And so if they come in here, say, and it's greed, and they're trying to buy land at a cheap price, or they think it's cheap, well, the value will go way down for them. That's what's happened in the past. And so it's not all one way. You've also got to remember that the reason these foreigners can buy our land is that there's plenty of Australians who want to sell the land and make a fortune out of it. So you need two to do a deal, and uh, there seems to be any amount of Aussies who will sell to anyone as long as they get a high price. Um, well, I mean, that's because of the speculative nature of the market. There's another dimension to it, though, isn't there, that the person who owns the land owns the ability to make the food. So, so if we're really, uh, the crunch really comes and we're no longer looking at a speculative bubble, but we're looking at uh, survival, then these, these foreign people who own the land will have the access to food and we won't. Well, maybe, but Giovanni, look, everything with an advantage has an equal disadvantage and globalisation has given us this advantages of very high standards of living and most importantly it's allowed third world countries to raise their standard of living which I think is fair even though it's not going to be very good for climate change, this fairness but when it comes to the problem that you're talking about, and I agree it's a problem, have everything sold off to foreign people. One of the problems is that the people, if they don't live here on the land, they're not making decisions that are local decisions, and I think that's really bad. You need people in the local progress association and mother's club and kids at the local school who actually live on the land and own it and have the whole catastrophe. If they're absentee landlords, that's a huge disadvantage because they don't really care about what's happening, you know, where the land is as long as the value stays up. So they're only concerned about it being profitable? Absolutely, and that's why they're here, but a lot of them get burnt, and I reckon the whole thing will probably be self-solving because I think the high prices they're paying will probably drop dramatically and they'll end up selling. Just near me here, where I live at Terry Hills, was a land that was bought, I understand, by the Japanese for about $100 million for a golf course, and I think they ended up selling it for $20 million. Now, that's the type of investment we need in Australia. We need people to come from overseas, pay high prices, put lots of money into the country, and then lose money. That's a great advantage for us, I can tell you. Not much good for them. Sounds a bit like selling the Brooklyn Bridge. Well, it uh, probably is, but if we can do that, fantastic. I mean, <laughs> I'm actually joking here, of course, but look, these people are coming in and speculating, trying to make money out of us, but quite often they lose their money, and when they lose it, it normally means the money stayed in Australia because the people who sold for the high prices were local Australians, and hopefully they're going to invest the money here, not overseas. Well, thanks very much for that, Dig. I'd like to uh, come back and talk a bit more about the global implications of this in just a moment. Great. There we have it, Dick having a little joke with me about uh, ripping off international investors. Uh, interesting topic. We didn't quite cover the Australian Geographic magazine. I probably played the snips in the wrong order, but we'll come back after this song from Carl S. Williams who's also on tour we played ads for the June Rats and Mavis Staples but Carl S. Williams will be playing the bearded lady on March the 7th here he is with I Fell For You
Williams, I fell for you. Currently touring Australia, will be at the Bearded Lady on March the 7th. Not sure if that date's right. Anyway, I'll check that date and come back to you. Uh, you're on the Zeds listening to Echo Radio with me, Jeff Ebbs. And I'm playing an interview that I did with Dick Smith about growth, and then we'll come back and talk about growth in more detail and how we bring it to an end and how we thrive and survive in a post-growth economy. Here's Dick. Morning, Dick Smith. Welcome back to The Generator. Morning, Giovanni. Dick, we've been talking about foreign ownership of Australian land and the impact that the global economy has on food and so on. One of the things that strikes me is globalisation and global trade is only good if it's fair, and in a lot of cases it seems to be rigged towards the rich. Well, I think it always will be rigged towards the rich, but but luckily there is, if the rich are going to buy, let's say, from India or China, uh, they have to be able to get their product made, and so that normally means gradually the standard of living, and it's the material standard of living, will rise in those countries, and that's got an advantage. I mean, in the end, hopefully we'll all have a similar standard of living. This might be hundreds of years away. There won't be quite the need for war, and each country will start manufacturing what it does best rather than what can be done cheaper by another country. I, I know that I did, and I think a lot of other people who were born in the 50s and 60s uh, hoped that we were starting to reach that age of global peace. You know, as the uh, 
uh, sort of threat of nuclear, what was it called, yep. mutually assured destruction uh, faded. We sort of hoped we were moving to a more stable world, but uh, recent world events, Iraq and so on, uh, seem to indicate we're entering a new period of conflict over you know, some resources that might be running short. Well, yes, and uh, I mean, we're imperfect creatures, human beings, and I won the Lottery of Life. I was born in 1944. I was just a little bit old to go to Vietnam. I've never had to go to a war. Been very fortunate. Now, will our children and grandchildren be just as fortunate? Let's hope so, but we don't know. But I, I can say that there definitely has been a gradual rise in the standard of living around the world, and as that happens, uh, people have less need to go to war because you know if you're I mean if you only have to look at Germany in the 1930s one of the reasons Hitler got support is there was such economic desperation there once people have a reasonable standard of living they really want to look after their kids and family and enjoy their life rather than go out killing people yeah, and we see that population growth drops as countries become more affluent. So, right, absolutely. Uh, so there's an advantage. The problem is that they uh, use more resources and create more heat. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we, we've been discussing variable effects of population growth versus uh, consumption. And even if China and India were to double their population and their consumption, they still wouldn't come close to the consumption of the developed world. Yeah, that's exactly right. But but they will if they try and have our material standard of living. I think you'll find that what we've been doing with the warming is just touching the edges at the moment. We will have to make a substantial changes and have a very substantial increase in the cost of living if we want to do something worthwhile in the Western world. And that's going to mean that the working class people are going to be affected more because if you raise the, the cost of living, that tends to affect the people who have less. Yes, indeed. Now, it seems to me, I'd be interested in your view, that at some stage there has to be an end to economic growth. If we're going to share resources more equitably and we're going to sort of make do with finite resources, we have to achieve some sort of stability. I couldn't agree more, and I've been saying this for years, but that doesn't fit in with capitalism, unfortunately. And I don't know, I mean, I'm a capitalist, and I don't know how whether the whole thing is designed to go boom and bust. In other words, just that's just part of nature. And uh, some people would be horrified when I say that, but the only system that's, that seems to have given us the economic growth that people want and the high standard of living is capitalism. But we all know that capitalism needs growth to survive, but in a finite word, you, world, you can't have growth. So one thing has got to collapse, and maybe that's because in nature it's always gone boom and bust, boom and bust, and maybe that's what will happen. It'll all self-correct because we'll all starve. Now, you've done an experiment, I understand, and tried to run a company in a no-growth mode. Is that right? Yeah, I have, and it's never worked. It's interesting. With Australian Geographic, I decided we weren't going to grow at all, and in the end, it's amazing. The good staff start to leave because they can't see a future for them, and uh, all of these problems come in, and it's really why... You know, pure socialism never worked. That human beings, I have a feeling the reason we're still on this earth is that we have basically wiped out anything that's competed with us. We are unfortunately sort of reasonably aggressive things and that fits in with our, our human nature, which then destroys us. Now, is it designed to, to grow and then bust, grow and bust? I don't know if there is any designer there, but that seems to me what's going to happen. And I think the world is incredibly resilient. This damage that we've caused in the last two or 300 years will be self-correcting, but it could take thousands of years to self-correct and we mightn't be around at the time. We may be the expendable component. Absolutely, There'd be, but there'll be some little cockroach still living that will start evolving again.
Nick Smith, thanks very much for talking to us and good on you for trying these experiments and, uh, you know, putting your money where your mouth is. Yeah, and by the way, you know, it's a bit negative what we've been saying. I think we can be positive. Maybe some genius will come along and we'll have enough sense to fix our problems. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Thanks very much for talking to us this morning. Wonderful to talk to you. Hello, I'm Lily for the Family Peace Foundation. My dad used to drink too much, especially on weekends. And most of the time, our family life was the pits. But on Father's Day last year, he promised us all he would never drink too much again. I know how hard it's been for him. But do you know what? My dad is a winner and now our family life is awesome. Family peace. Do it for your kids. sinking sand, crawl through the shadow valley to try to understand. I climbed a Jacob's ladder, I fell down holy stairs, I found Siddhartha's temple, no answer anywhere. The minute you think you know you got it, is the minute you know it's gone for good. The second you pause, his claws are on it The tiger inside will eat the child oh. Oh. I saw a hall of mirrors I saw a burning wheel I saw
the tiger inside will eat the child. Kate Miller-Heidke here on 4ZZZ FM where it's two minutes to one o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday the 26th of February in the year 2020 on the earth, in the universe. Uh, my name is Jeff Hebsch. You're listening to Echo Radio. We've been talking about the circular economy and growth or post-growth or degrowth. So the problem is we can't keep growing forever. We heard Dick sum it up quite nicely there. Interesting that he summed it up so succinctly and then uh, <laughs> finished off by saying, oh, that's a bit negative. Let's hope that some genius comes along and saves us. And that's the challenge we all face. We really do face a wicked problem and we haven't actually confronted the fact that to end growth is going to be quite difficult. So there's a number of different sort of movements or frameworks around this. So there's a whole lot of new economy, natural capitalism, uh, circular economy probably fits into those uh, that school of thought where how can we survive or thrive economically in a sustainable manner? Once we start to confront the problems of growth and the dependence of our financial system on growth, just think about how pointless it would be to borrow money from a bank and pay interest on a house if it didn't increase in value. That's the nature of the problem that we face. So capitalism, the loaning of capital of to each other to do things, which underpins our economic system, depends on growth. That's why it's the obsession of all of our governments. So how do we end growth? So there's a whole series of books, academics, works, talking about post-growth, what happens after we stop growing. Then there's a whole other lot of movements, academics and books about degrowth. What is the process we use to end growth? So degrowth comes before post-growth. Degrowth is a process. Post-growth is a state. It's obviously full of challenges on all fronts and it's a topic that we will keep coming back to. It's interesting that in pure capitalism terms, we've had an era during the tech time where we didn't worry too much about money and things kept going. Uber, for example, has never turned a profit, but it's quite—it's growing quite rapidly. And while Uber might still be driving around cars, it's replacing private car ownership. So there are some interesting models, but they all have the problem that if we continue to grow, if we continue to burn fossil fuels, then we will keep harming the planet. I'm Jeff Ebbs. That's about it for me. A couple of songs to see us out and um, I'll come back and just finalise an announcement after another track from uh, Carl S. Williams. Appropriately, Bills Above. Talking about, said I was dark and a stranger was like. 
Williams. Now I've been telling you he was here on the wrong date, so I'm going to give you the right one. He's here on Friday, March the 13th at the Bearded Lady. Currently wandering around New South Wales. Local lad. Sings old classic blues, even though he's a young fella. Uh, now, Wavy just called in to tell us about a permaculture function, but I haven't got the details of that. I'll give you again the details of the uh, meet-up tonight, 5 o'clock. St- uh, talks start at 6 o'clock at The Precinct in Brunswick Street Mall in the Valley. So if you're interested in finding out more about the circular economy, you can go there. 